Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Alan Cross. And this summer, we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of alt-rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. Once upon a time, all music was made mechanically. Something had to be hit with a hand or a stick, or maybe strummed or plucked, or air had to be forced over a reed or through a valve. Then along came electricity. It took a while, but electricity was tamed so that it could not only power new forms of musical instruments, but the energy itself could be made musical. By the beginning of the 1980s, the people of planet Earth were most pleased by what they had accomplished. But in the background, some people knew that there was still much more work to be done. They began asking, what if anything could be made into music? Others still mused, what if we could take existing music, chop it up, and reassemble it into something brand new? Some used the old ways, chopping up these sounds mechanically using proven machinery like turntables and tape machines. But others learned to use new inventions called computers and samplers. And so it came to pass that all through the 1980s, people began to experiment with electricity and these new machines. And by the time the decade ended, there was plenty of new and interesting music to go around. Music was being made by machines, orchestrated by computers, and programmed by punks. And things would never be the same ever again. This is the Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 10. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 10 in a series called The Complete History of Alt-Rock, a very broad overview of how modern rock came to be. If the alt-rock sounds of the 1970s was guitars played by punks, the alt-rock sound of the 1980s was the synthesizer played by people inspired by punks. 
And once they found what they could do with the synth, they found other toys to play with. And the results were pretty radical. But wait a second, I'm getting ahead of things. To properly understand what happened in the 1980s, we have to go back to the 1800s. Let me start. In 1899, the world was introduced to a device called the singing arc. A physicist named William Duddle discovered that the coil and capacitor of a common carbon arc lamp gave off a sound. After a few experiments, Duddle was able to control the oscillations in the circuit with a keyboard, altering its pitch. And the singing arc, which is what he called this thing, became the first purely electronic musical instrument. Then, 20 years later, a Soviet physicist named Leon Theremin invented an electronic musical instrument that could be played without being touched. Coils inside the box gave off an electrical field. Waving your hand through that invisible field produced a tone. Waving your other hand in a different spot changed the pitch of that tone. And done right, it sounds like a warbling female opera singer, like the theme in the sci-fi classic film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. In the 1960s, groups like the Beach Boys and Led Zeppelin experimented with theremins. You know that thing in Good Vibrations? That's a theremin. That wild, goofy solo in the middle of Whole Lot of Love? A theremin. Okay, back up again. The late 20s and early 30s saw a series of new electronic instruments. There was the Martineau, the Chartonium, the Emicon, the Electrond, the Novochord, the Obukov. And here's my absolute favorite, the Electronic Sackbutt. It was invented in 1946 by a Canadian named Hugh Lacane. Why he called it the electronic sack butt, I have no idea. Anyway, most of these machines weren't very friendly. They were ornery, they were tough to use, and some were just too damn big. The teleharmonium, which was one of these instruments, weighed over 200 tons, and it had to be moved from place to place on railway cars. In 1938, an inventor named René Bertrand introduced something called the oscillator. This was a device that allowed an operator more control over electronically produced tones. In the 1950s, West German Radio built an experimental electronic studio. Columbia University in New York constructed a synthesizer that filled an entire room and could only be programmed by making hundreds of connections with patch cords. Then a breakthrough. 1963, an inventor named Don Buckla came up with a voltage-controlled synthesizer a little black box that could tame electronically generated sounds with much greater precision than ever before. He was followed by Dr. Bob Moog. In less than two years, with the support of Columbia, Princeton, and the University of Toronto, he found a way to shrink the synthesizer to a commercially feasible size. Didn't have to fill a room anymore. You could actually bring it down to something reasonable, like a kitchen. Now, we've already covered this in a previous chapter, but it's worth trotting out again. In 1967, the synthesizer made his debut in the world of rock and roll. It was a quick 20-second solo in a song by the Monkees called Star Collector.
Now, that was cool and everything, but few musicians took the notion of pure electronic music seriously. It was okay for the odd effect. Even the Beatles agreed about that. But to make music that was purely electronic? Forget it. That is, until 1968, when a classical musician named Walter Carlos decided to record some Bach. And heresy of heresies, he did this without using a symphony orchestra. Carlos worked with Dr. Bob Moog to perfect the synthesizer. They collaborated on what sounds it produced and how those sounds could be controlled and manipulated. And the result was an all-electronic 1968 album switched on Bach, which sold more than a million copies. Just a quick aside here, Walter Carlos dropped out of sight in the early 1970s after composing the all-electronic score for the Stanley Kubrick movie A Clockwork Orange. The profits from those bold synthesizer experiments paid for a sex change operation. And now Wendy Carlos lives and works in New York City. January 24th, 1970. Very important date. That's when Dr. Moog introduced the Mini Moog, or as people came to pronounce it, the Mini Moog. It was small, it was portable, it was powerful, and most of all, at 1200 bucks, reasonably cheap. And within three years, 300 Mini Moogs were being sold every month. For the first time, rock musicians had the option to move beyond guitars, pianos, and drums. And here is when we finally make contact with the history of alt-rock. Thanks to that electronic studio built by West German Radio, German musicians had already been exposed to almost 20 years of electronic sounds by the turn of the 1970s. And like we discussed in Chapter 6, many young Germans turned to electronics as a way of creating a musical identity distinct from the rock and roll that the British and the Americans were making. There were groups like Can and Tangerine Dream, and most important of all, Kraftwerk. I know we've talked about them before, but we need to bring them up again. In 1974, they released a totally electronic album entitled Autobahn, and a drastically edited version of the 23-minute title track became a worldwide pop hit. It's a simple song, really, about the joys of driving through the German countryside in their Volkswagen. And the sounds that we hear on this record were actually recorded by the members of the band in their people's car. Again, I have to emphasize that the influence of Kraftwerk cannot be underestimated. They showed how synthesizers could be applied to pop music in meaningful ways. Those who were inspired by punk but bored with guitars took a lot of lessons from Kraftwerk. And by the beginning of the 1980s, synthesizers were everywhere. And this brings us to the techno-pop sounds of the 1980s. Depeche Mode, Human League, Yazoo, Visage, And again, this is all material that we covered in Chapter 6. But as modern as the polyphonic synthesizer was, people just couldn't stop tinkering with the new inventions. For example, the guitarist? Already gone. Next guy to get rid of? The drummer. But you had to have something keeping the beat, right? This is an issue that goes back to at least the 1930s, when Leon Theremin, yeah, the same guy, helped develop a device called the Rhythmicon, It was pretty cool, but take it from me, it was just way too complicated. It was followed by a series of rhythm machines pre-programmed to play standard beats. You had your waltz, the tango, the foxtrot, that kind of thing. 
Then came machines that operated with tape loops, featuring recordings of real drums. You fiddled with the controls to change how those tape loops played back. By the end of the 1950s, beatboxes were put into organs. If you know of anyone with one of those old electones made by Yamaha or those hulking things made by Wurlitzer, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say beatboxes. In the 60s and 70s, rhythm machines evolved into drum machines. Companies like Roland and Multivox and Bentley started selling devices which were actually pretty cool. The New German electronic bands loved them. And for the record, a little aside here, the first rock band to use a drum machine for an entire album was a group called Kingdom Come, 1972. In the Technopop days, rhythm tracks were often pre-recorded and played back on stage using prominently displayed reel-to-reel tape machines. You can see one in some early Depeche Mode videos. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark called their tape machine Winston. Others used the machines themselves on stage. The Echo in Echo and the Bunnymen was actually a drum machine. The Sisters of Mercy toured with a box they called Dr. Avalanche because it kept crashing. Anyway, give it a listen. Flesh and Blood drummers really got nervous through the 1980s, especially after Roland unveiled the TR-808. This was an analog drum machine with a unique sound that many people found inspiring. Check it out. I know you've heard some of these sounds. So we have keyboard synthesizers and drum machines. The final big technological development was the sequencer, a device that could tell other devices what to do and when. In 1978, Roland introduced the MC4, one of the first truly useful sequencers. It could store about 12,000 notes, which was awesome, except that they had to be entered one by one. And once all that programming was done, the data was stored on a cassette tape. Can you imagine losing that data? It was absolute hell to operate, but once you got it right, all you had to do was hit the start button and the MC4 would launch a series of synthesizer events. It would sequence them without the need for further human intervention. And it's stuff like this that allowed groups like the Human League to leave the studio and hit the road. Listen to how this song is pieced together as the sequencer triggers event after event. The next step was finding a way for all these different keyboards and drum machines and sequencers to talk to each other. To do that, they needed a common language, an industry standard, so all the machines from one manufacturer could talk to all the other machines from any other manufacturer. And in June of 1983, we got it. Musical Instrument Digital Interface, or MIDI for short. And this meant that any MIDI-equipped synthesizer could now talk to any MIDI drum machine or any MIDI sequencer. It was now easy for a single musician to appear on stage and sound like an entire orchestra. But if you had the cash, you could go even bigger. An Australian company came up with something they called the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument. It could synthesize sounds, sequence events, and, and this is a biggie, sample sounds digitally. 
for the very first time, you could record, isolate, and manipulate any sound you wanted. That's what a sample is. You take a sound bit from someplace, you mess with it, and then you use it in a completely new way. In the case of the Fairlight, the samples appeared as waveforms that appeared on a black and white monitor, which could then be manipulated using a light pen. It was all so futuristic. Now, naturally, the only people who could really afford these things, which sold for $30,000 and up, were high-end recording studios. But once these guys got their hands on these Fairlight instruments, the stuff they could do... Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Relax from 1984. The sounds on that song would have never been possible without using this new device called a Fairlight. For example, every time we hear the snare drum on Relax, we're hearing a sample. The original sound comes from a Led Zeppelin record. In the studio, when the drummer hit the snare, it triggered the sample of the Zepp drum in the Fairlight, which had already been manipulated slightly into something new, and that's what you got on the record. Back then, this was absolute magic. Peter Gabriel did the same thing with his So album. Stuart Copeland is credited with playing on the record, but all he really did was contribute the snare drum sound sampled from some old police record. This got people thinking. If you could sample something like a snare drum, why not something else? Why not something longer? Great question. That's where we'll pick it up in a second. This is Chapter 10 in a series called The Complete History of Alt-Rock, and this time we're talking about some major technological advances in the 1980s that made a whole new type of music possible. Now let's go deeper into the concept of sampling. This is where the composer surgically excises a sound from a source, any source, for use in another composition. The length of this sound can be anywhere from a fraction of a second to, uh, well, however long you want it to be. Once the sample is isolated, it can be used as is, or it can be further manipulated with a computer or a specialized device like the Fairlight or the devices from their competitors like Synclavier and a company called Emu Systems. Michael Jackson used some Emu gear in his Thriller album. $10,000 bought you a machine that could sample anything, just as long as the sample wasn't longer than two seconds. The result can be used to add spice to a song, or a series of samples can be stitched together to create a completely brand new song. It's the musical equivalent of constructing a cool Frankenstein monster. No new parts, necessarily, just a collection of used pieces, carefully assembled in creative ways. But, you know, this really wasn't all that new. Sampled sounds started appearing in music in the 1940s, when magnetic recording tape first appeared. It could be anything from standard sound effects to manipulated shortwave radio interference. Some musicians employed the philosophy of found sound, meaning that they incorporated the sounds of everyday life into their music. For example, Canada's Skinny Puppy used bits of dialogue lifted directly from movies to augment their sound as early as 1983. But the big commercial breakthrough came in 1985 when Big Audio Dynamite released this song. All the music was new, but for added effect, Mick Jones dubbed in some dialogue from a 1970 film called Performance. This was really radical stuff for the day. And E equals MC squared became the first worldwide rock and roll hit to feature sample. Straight 
That's what became of Mick Jones after he was kicked out of The Clash. His group was called Big Audio Dynamite, and that was a massive hit single in 1985 and 86 called E Equals MC Squared. And honestly, it wasn't so much the song that attracted everyone's attention, but the way it was made using samples. More people wanted to make music like this, but who could afford all those hours in expensive recording studios? But just like any other technology, there was always a way to make it more powerful, smaller, and cheaper. And the big breakthrough came from a Japanese company called Akai, who released the S900 in 1986. This little sampler had enough memory to store a 12-second sample, and it only cost $1,000. By 1988, Akai was selling the S1000. It was 100 times more powerful than the original $30,000 Fairlight, and one-tenth the price. With that kind of memory and that kind of processing power available, you could do stuff like, uh, Pump up the volume. well, like this. That's a made-up studio creation called Mars from 1987, a Frankenstein monster of a song called Pump Up the Volume. This was an absolutely huge record in the history of sampling and studio technology. Remember the last show when we talked about 4AD, the adventurous British indie label? They were the people behind Mars. Ivo Watts Russell, the guy running the company, assembled a bunch of musicians from his label and a couple of DJs. Classic beats were cut in with samples from other records. There were several rap groups involved, including Eric B. and Rakim. There was an Israeli pop singer named Afra Haza. There was James Brown. And in there someplace is a recording of the Iranian Revolutionary Army Chorus. This one-hit wonder got so many people excited about the new technologies that were now available to make music. It also introduced them to a place they thought they'd never go back to, the dance club. Hold that thought back in a second. For many music fans, disco killed dancing dead. Paying to dance in a dark room, drinking overpriced beers while some guy played records just sucked. But things do change. In Chapter 9, we looked at New Order's Blue Monday, a record that bridged that gap between cool indie music and dance music. It helped make dancing cool again. And as memories of disco faded, the idea of dancing in a club didn't really seem so bad after all, especially since there were some really cool records to be heard in those clubs. Now, of course, New Order was all about 12-inch remixes after Blue Monday. And so was Depeche Mode and The Cure and the Human League, and Simple Minds, and The Cult, and Killing Joke, and Erasure, and Psychedelic Furs, and Madness, they all got into the 12-inch business. So did bands like ZZ Top, which was a bad idea, but that's a completely other story. Tied to all this was the resurrection of the DJ and what became club culture of the 1980s. Here's how it happened. When disco was happening in the clubs back in the 70s, rap and hip-hop was being born on the streets of New York. Quick-handed DJs grabbed beats off records while MCs rapped their own rhymes over top. MCs and DJs competed against each other to see who had the fattest beats and the dopest rhymes. This is the culture that gave us Run DMC and Grandmaster Flash. Now today we would call this turntablism, chopping records into sounds that are then manipulated to something totally new. Some DJs became so good that in their hands, Turntables and mixers were genuine musical instruments that were used to create brand new music out of a series of, well, spare parts. 
without having to spend $30,000 on a Fairlight machine. It was inevitable that these manual techniques of chopping up sounds for recycling into new compositions would end up being used in the studio, especially after the introduction of the sampler. See, hip-hop lives in a world of sound, not just in a world of music. And because those sounds can come from anywhere, the sonic possibilities of hip-hop were much different and often much broader than rock music. So in this sense, hip-hop is very much like those early avant-garde electronic composers playing notes wasn't important as finding ways to play sounds. In 1982, a New York DJ and MC named Africa Bambada released a track called Planet Rock. And this one song became ground zero, the source of everything from house and electro to garage and Miami bass. It also had a huge, huge effect on the future of what became known as hip hop. Here's a bit of the song. And note the sample from Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express. Africa Bambada and Planet Rock, one of the most influential records of the 1980s. And he is recognized as one of the founding fathers of rap. And by extension, we must give respect to Kraftwerk. Now let's skip over to Detroit. Generally speaking, techno is percussion-based electronic dance music stripped down to the point where bass lines and drum beats rule. Techno's roots lie in the earliest synthesizer pioneers and the avant-garde electronic composers, plus Kraftwerk and Bowie and the English technopop scene and African Bombada and all those quick-handed DJs stealing power off streetlights to power their mixers and turntables and mics. But it took this small scene in Detroit to take all those elements and put them together in a new and highly influential way. In fact, this scene was so small it can be traced to just three friends, Kevin Saunderson, Juan Atkins, and Derek May. These guys were fascinated by all those artists I just mentioned, plus Motown and disco and dance music in general. Their mission became to make funky dance music using cheap synthesizers. These sounds moved to Chicago, where they took on a slightly different flavor thanks to a DJ named Frankie Knuckles, who spun some awesome sets at a club called The Warehouse, and soon this Chicago style became known as house music. New York got into the act. Miami had its own version. And eventually it all jumped over the Atlantic to the UK. This brings us to year zero in the whole history of what we now call electronica. In 1988, Detroit Techno, Chicago House, and the dance scene of New York were all embraced by English music fans. It also helped that this was the summer the kids all started getting into a new drug called ecstasy. This was called the Summer of Love. The beginnings of a new dance culture in the UK. It was rave culture. It wasn't about a band or a song. It was about the DJ, the often anonymous guy or woman, up in the booth, making the mixes and making the people dance. He was the performer. He was the star. A guy called Gerald. That's the name he went by. His real name was Gerald Simpson. And he was a DJ from Manchester who often manned the turntables at the Hacienda, the infamous club owned by New Order and Factory Records. Now, this place, if you haven't heard the story before, was a miserable failure at first. But once UK club culture hit, it was the center of the universe. 
until the drugs and the gangs and the debt killed it off. But that's a whole show unto itself. Anyway, over the next few years, British club culture split into many different distinct scenes. There was acid and tribal and hardbag and Balearic trance, drums and bass and jungle and a bunch of others. The UK scene got so big that by 1994, the government tried to ban raves with a law called the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. Okay, fine, but what does all this music have to do with our history of alt-rock? Well, a lot, actually, especially if you're a fan of the British music of the 1990s. That will come up in Chapter 12. But first, we need to discuss Chapter 11. Let's summarize where we are after 10 chapters of this series called The Complete History of Alt-Rock. It's the very end of the 1980s. If you're in North America and into non-mainstream rock, you're into bands like R.E.M. and Sonic Youth and Hardcore Punk and the cooler Technopop bands from the UK. You spend a lot of time in small, dark clubs or in record stores flipping through the stuff that Walmart doesn't stock. If you're in the UK, you're either whacked out of your mind on ecstasy and going to raves every chance you get, or you're scouring through the NME and the Melody Maker for the coolest new bands on tiny indie labels. But whatever you're doing, you're pretty much off the radar when it comes to the mainstream. You're living in this parallel universe, a petri dish with a lot of people who share your views and sensibilities and tolerances for music. You want nothing to do with hair metal or classic rock or new kids on the block or anything on Top 40 radio. You know good music, and you're happy to keep it all to yourself and your friends. That's about to change, and change big. Next time on Chapter 11, it's the rise of the alternative nation. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 